What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. This week, I'm going to take you on a little journey behind the scenes into my own world, and I'm going to be covering some of the difficult decisions that I'm currently faced with, and not just myself, but I think anyone who is a commercial landlord and who has commercial assets, certainly assets in, say, the area of office. And, um, you know, as time moves on, you, you buy a building, um, you own it. It's, say you, own, you buy a building at new or you develop a building from new. At the outset, you have a tenant in there, you sign a long lease. Leases nowadays, you know, are not as long as they used to be. But back when I, my career started, 25 years was quite normal. 35 years was actually kind of on the way out, but it was still, I did see some 35-year leases uh, in my early days as a property investor. Uh, nowadays, with you know tech companies and all this kind of stuff, the most you're probably going to see is maybe 15 years. But what happens is you sign these long leases and then the building sits there for many, many years um, with the tenant paying the rent and everything is great. And it's just like a, an ATM, it keeps on producing income on a regular basis. And then time moves on. As time moves on, you suddenly find that the building has aged and it has become a little bit, maybe not obsolete completely, but you know, so the equipment is reaching the end of its sell-by date and things like that. Um, owning a property asset, this is one of the things that you got to remember. It's a very rewarding owning a property asset in a rising market when you know, rental income is coming in good, when you're actually looking at capital appreciation of the asset as well. It's all great, but it would be a critical error on your behalf to overlook the fact that you've got to maintain your asset and you've got to reinvest in your asset. And this is especially the case nowadays with you know the rapid onset of innovation, property technology, all of this kind of stuff. And with the increasing signs that climate change is here at our doorstep, as I'm saying this now, I'm in my office and it's sweltering hot. It's actually, it's Sunday and I've just heard the papers, I've been looking at the papers and they're they are warning in that the UK is going to be looking at 40 degrees of heat uh, on Tuesday next. So in the next day or two, I can well believe it because it is sweltering hot today here in Dublin. And we usually are about 10 degrees lower than the temperature in the UK when it gets hot. So anyway, without further ado, let me take you behind the scenes into some of the difficult decisions that commercial landlords are currently facing. You are listening to Behind the Facade, and I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher. On this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. All right, guys, welcome back. Look, you, many of you are residential property investors, and so I do understand that this, you know, you may only have a passing interest in the, you know, decisions that commercial landlords have. But in my experience, what I have seen over the years is that the residential market tends to lag behind the commercial market when it comes to some of these more difficult decisions. And so anything that's happening to me today 
is most likely going to be happening to you uh, at some point in the future. Now, if you're a smaller commercial landlord and you have smaller assets, these decisions are probably not facing you right now, uh, but they might in the, in the not too distant future. And uh, certainly in the residential sector, it's probably even further off, but I think it will change over the next while. Now, so let me just explain what I mean by some of the commercial decisions or the, some of the decisions facing a commercial investor. I have uh, some property assets in this portfolio that I look after, and they're about, say, 25 years old. Okay? We, we brought in tenants uh, 20, 25 years ago, whenever it was, and they were in there and they spent many, many years paying their rent on time, and they've had a great asset and they've had a great relationship with us but they've reached the end of their life, uh, of their tenancy, and they have decided that it's time to move on. And in a sense, you can't blame them because there are lots of new assets out there that they can kind of just move straight from their existing building into a brand new office building somewhere else. Um, now, of course, we would offer them you know, various incentives to stay and things like that, but in this particular case, after so many years, a lot of the time, businesses have changed and there's different kind of um, values, different uh, motivations for being in a certain location versus another location. So they made the decision to move on and they handed back the building to us. Now, when a, when a commercial tenant hands a building back, most, uh, certainly in the office sector, most uh, of the time there is what's known as a schedule of dilapidations that gets done. That is where we send professionals in, they will go through the entire floor or building or whatever it is being handed back. And in the process of doing that, they will identify various things that are you know, in a bad state or in need of re repair, refurbishment, replacement, whatever it is. And back when the tenant originally signed the lease, they would have taken on certain obligations to keep all of this either new or to return it to us in a new state when the building lease comes to an end. So we serve this notice on them. They'll get their own experts to go through it. And usually it's a bit of a horse trade and it ends up at a certain sum of money being paid over to us. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say what the amount will be, but I would estimate that probably six to, uh, six to 12 months rent would not be unusual um, in terms of that final payment, uh, depending on the condition that the building has been handed back in. Now, what do you do with the building? As a landlord, you know, you've just received this chunk of uh, payment, this, this chunk of money, and what are you going to do with that? Now, don't forget that the tenant has now left, so you no longer have the benefit of their income coming in. So you don't have any more rent coming through to you. And if you don't have any more rent coming through to you, this final payment represents the last check that you're going to get before you manage to sign up your next tenant. So there's a lot of stuff to consider what to do with that money. Um, you've got to consider the current market cycle that you're in. You've got to consider the current you know, supply demand issues in the market. There are, are there a lot of tenants looking for space? Is there a lot of product on the market? And so you have a lot of competition. Um, then you've also got to think about your own situation. I mean, you've got a business, depending on your own port situation and whatever, but if you have a portfolio of buildings, Hopefully you have income coming from other buildings that'll help you kind of bridge the gap. If you just own this one asset, then it's a more difficult situation that you're in because your income has just come to a complete end 
and you've got this final check. And that can be a difficult decision to make because you have to now decide to give up that check to reinvest in the building and hopefully get a tenant to sign up pretty quickly. Or what do you do? You know, do you hold on to the money and then leave the building in a kind of poor, tatty state and then you find it difficult to rent or you find tenants that come into it are looking for a discounted rent? This is why the market cycle matters. If you've got tenants out there, if there's hundreds of tenants looking for single floors and you've got a single floor, then you've got a lot of you know, competition looking for that. So maybe you can get somebody to just take it as is. But on the other hand, if there's an awful lot of buildings out there that are becoming available and there's only a small handful of tenants, then the shoe is on the other foot. Other landlords are making you know, good offers offering incentives and stuff and so it can be difficult to secure that tenant and these are all the things you have to kind of consider now do you refurbish the building of course you have to refurbish a certain amount the tenant has handed you this check and the idea is that that check gets used to refurbish the building uh, the problem is is usually the check falls short of the kind of job that needs to be done and you've got to put in your own in capital into this payment in order to kind of cover a, a, a you know comprehensive uh, refurbishment and so do you have enough capital to do a comprehensive refurbishment that is one of the issues that you've got to consider and then you got to look at the age and the condition of the building and say you know what you know level of refurbishment do we need to go to then the final thing that you have to think about in this whole kind of conundrum that you're dealing with is what is the return on investment going to be? If you were looking at a, you know, say you've decided that the building is quite old now and it needs a, a comprehensive refurbishment, that can be a lot of money. That can be much, much more than the annual rent versus say, what's the return on investment if the building work that you're proposing is only a small job let's say it's less than a year's rent and um, it won't have all the bells and whistles but it will be you know painted with new carpets and, and things like that so it'll look good but it will not be a modern building by comparison and then there's people who will want to keep as much of that payment that they got back and they're going to be looking to just do the absolute minimum like just paint the lobby and that's it there you go you can take the building as is and we go off and we'll bring in our professional advisors. There will be property agents. There will be um, different, there's, you know, there's engineers and architects that get involved in this. We'll bring in contractors that will kind of advise us on the cost of certain things. You get a lot of different views. You get a lot of opposing views sometimes. You get a lot of contradictory reports. And it can be difficult to make a final decision because you've got so much information. Some of it is pointing you in one direction. Some of it is pointing you in the opposite direction. And you've got to try and make this decision yourself. Ultimately, you're the person who's left with the building. So, you know, if the building, if you're just going to do a small job and, you know, in you go and you know, you paint the lobby and things like that. The likelihood is, is your building is going to sit empty for a while. So usually what we will do is bring in uh, some professional advisors and there'll actually be quite a range of advisors being brought in at this stage. We will bring in our professional um, valuers, uh, you know, the, the estate agents that do the leasing of the building. There will be people that kind of do a valuation of the building. 
We'll be bringing in, uh, we'll be actually talking with our bankers as well, just to make sure that they have, um, you know, they'll have certain views on the kind of work that should be done. And we'll also be bringing in then, depending on the size of the job, but in this particular case, in the building that I'm currently looking at, we've brought in the architect, the engineers, the mechanical and electrical contractors, various people are brought in just to kind of get the different views on the cost and what's the market doing and where are we going. And even though the building was handed back to us in a you know very presentable condition, when we walk in initially, you kind of look around and you say, this seems perfectly fine. But it's when you when you kind of lift the lid and look under the bonnet, so to speak, you start to realize that the systems are actually quite old now and in need of replacement. So like, for example, when you look at the mechanical and electrical, most of the jobs that we're talking about these days, these you know older buildings, the real expense is going to be in the mechanical and electrical services. So for example, the elevator, the uh, air conditioning system, the, uh, the air handling units, the boiler system um, for heating the building, and also the lighting system. And um, then on top of that, you've obviously got decoration, like the carpets, the ceilings, the painting of the walls and all that. And uh, the other consideration you've got to have is the configuration of the building. If your previous occupier that has now left, if they are, say, a large single tenant that occupied the entire building, okay, um, they will have set the building up a certain way that suited them as a single occupier. But if you were thinking about, like, say, for example, your tenant, uh, your, your advisors come back and say, like, it's going to be very difficult to find a single tenant. You're probably safer going out and trying to split the building into a couple of floors and try to rent each floor individually. And so instead of having one single tenant, you might try to split the building into three or four separate tenants. Now, if you're going to do that, then the configuration of the building is going to have to change. And that's where you'll also be getting into some expenses. For example, a, you know, a, a large tenant may have a canteen. You know, larger tenants tend to have a canteen, for example. They might have large server rooms, communication rooms where all of their servers and, and racks and stuff go. They might have a big, big boardroom. And then they'd have, say, various meeting rooms and they'd have, you know, offices for various managers and stuff like that. When you get into individual tenants, it's a different, it's a, it's a different setup. First of all, um, you're going to have just a small kitchenette. You don't need a, a canteen, so to speak. Um, you're probably going to just have a, a more of a, a server closet. It's like a, a small room. It's not a big, big room. And you're going to probably be looking at just a manager's office and maybe a meeting room. You don't need lots of meeting rooms, typically speaking, we'll say. And then the other thing to consider is your lobby and your lift. If you are a single occupier, when you walk into the front you know, reception of the building, usually there's a desk there and there would be a receptionist who's sitting at the desk and will you know, in, you know, introduce herself to you and you say, you know, who do you need to speak to? And they'll go and organize a call. However, when the building is split into, say, three or four, somebody walks into the building and perhaps there is no receptionist at all. You just have a, a panel on the wall that says, first floor, such and such a company, second floor, such and such a company. And the person will just make their way to the third floor or whatever to meet that particular company. And so this is where 
the configuration can change and it can be a little bit different. And you, you have to kind of think about all these things because when you're making these decisions, you don't always know the answer. So you're thinking to yourself, it's all speculative, okay? You know, we're thinking, okay, should we tear out the canteen? Should we rip out all these server rooms? Should we reconfigure the lobby now? Um, but we don't actually know, will a large tenant take the entire building or will a single tenant take the entire building or take, you know, multiple floors? Um, smaller tenants take, you know, they might, you might find three tenants sign up much, much quicker than one large tenant. And so you might find that even though it's a bit of work to do it, you could find that you have the building rented, re-rented much quicker. Now, obviously, the smart thing to do in this particular case would be to have a really good network um, of connections and lots of tenants and occupiers that you connect and, and network with on a regular basis. And you go out to them, you would have gone out to them long before the tenant vacated the property and you would have an idea are they interested? And you could actually have a situation if you're in a, if you're kind of a real dynamic kind of person who can move quickly at this kind of stuff, sometimes you can go out and you can actually secure your tenant for the, the next refurbishment of the building. And you will know exactly what they want. You'll know what rent they're prepared to pay. You'll know how they want the place configured. And the day that the tenant that you've been collecting rent from for 20 years moves out, your contractors move in, and as soon as they're finished, you have the tenant ready to go. And they might have already signed a prelat or something like that. Now, much, much easier said than done uh, because tenants don't always make decisions in, just that, in a time frame that necessarily suits you. And so you just have to wait for what the market is doing at the time. So let's go back to that big decision. What kind of a job are you going to do? Are you going to do a big job? Or are you going to do a small job? Or are you going to do the absolute bare minimum? And um, you have to kind of think about, as we mentioned, the, the return on investment, okay? What's the return on investment based on those different jobs that you're thinking about doing? Let's say, first of all, what is return on investment? Like the value of the work you're going to do versus the projected rental income that you're going to earn having done it. And so let's, let's look at three options here, okay? We'll say option one is a big job, and that is where you're going to tear the, part, the, the building apart. You're going to go and replace all the mechanical electrical equipment. You're going to reconfigure the floors. You're going to basically bring it back to being like a brand new building. And let's say the expenditure on that is about a million, all right? Now, let's say the smaller job where you're just going to do not the bare minimum, but you're going to just spend, say, the, the money that you got from the, from the previous tenant. And you're going, to spend, you're going to do a dilapidation. You know, whatever you got for the dilapidations, you're going to take that money and you're going to reinvest it back in the building. So let's say in this case, that's about 200000 okay? So it's substantially, it's only a one-fifth of the amount of money that we're talking about for the big job. And then the bare minimum, all right? This is where you don't plan to do anything with the existing equipment, you don't plan to do anything with the configuration. You just, you're going to send in painters, you're going to get new carpets, and that's going to be about it. And that might be as little as 50,000, we'll say, for new carpets throughout the building and repaint it. So what's your rental income? And that is how you're going to derive whether or not the one is, uh, has a better return on investment than the other. Let's say that your tenant that, you, that has left the building was paying you 300,000 a year, all right? And so you now look at these three options for work. 
in comparison to the rental income that you had been getting in the past. So 300 grand in a year, and you're talking about in option one, you're talking about spending a million. So you're talking about spending the equivalent of three years of rent on the building itself. And so that obviously is a major spend. Um, it'll take you three years to actually recoup any of the money back on that building. And so some people might question, like, why would you even think about doing that? But I'll explain a little bit more as we go on. The next thing is the, the, the option two, say 200 grand, okay? So comparatively, it represents about eight months of the rental income for a year in that building. And so you, you, do, you, you spend the money on the building and then you're straight away at the end of that year, you'd be back earning again. And then the bare minimum, you just spend the equivalent of say one month of rent. And um, in, this, in the case of option two, you actually were getting the payment from the tenant, uh, the dilapidations. And so you're basically taking that money and you're spending it on the building. So it hasn't cost you anything except for the fact that the building is out of action while you're doing that work. And so you're losing rent while it's vacant. And, um, and so how long will it take you to complete that work? How long will it ten, then ten, take you to find a tenant to move in? And then in the case of the bare minimum, the tenant moves out, you send in the painters and the carpenter and get the place carpeted, and that's it. And so right away, it's available on the market again to rent. Now, most people are going to rec recognize the issue here, and that is that it's not straightforward comparison, okay? If you spend a million on a building, you're going to expect the rent to be substantially higher than the building that has only just got a lick of paint and a new carpet. And if you're going to spend 200,000 on the building, you would hope to get a higher rent than if you just do the lick of paint. So these, these are you know, the, the different levels. You've spent a million, so you expect a higher rent. You spent 200,000, so you expect higher than the bare minimum. And that's what you would think, all right? But actually, this is where it gets a little bit difficult at the moment. You know. Even though tenants do notice the difference between money spent and money not spent, and they'd like to pay for quality, you would think. At this moment in time, it is not clear. Because, first of all, we have the economy is starting to kind of look a little bit shaky in different countries. And inflation is starting to rear its head. People are talking about potential recession. You've got the uncertainty of the Russia invasion of Ukraine at the moment. There's a lot of uncertainty in the air and with crypto and the stock market as well you can see it and so investors are starting to become a little bit more careful and circumspect and so when it comes to investors making these big decisions what we're actually seeing at the moment is that um, even though you're prepared to spend this extra money you're not necessarily going to get the extra rent and so it is a difficult situation uh, where i am seeing the big shift is there's a, there's a big shift in focus on sustainability and ESG and lower carbon emissions and things like that. And to achieve these costs or to achieve these, these, these you know, uh, improvements to the building, it does cost a lot. So if you want the building to be highly sustainable and ticking all the boxes in terms of ESG and lower carbon emissions and, and all of that kind of good stuff, then you're going to have to spend the one million you're going to have to opt for that first option and do the big job because you will not get the building down to the level of sustainability that everyone is kind of expecting for anything less than say a million and so 
you would think to yourself, okay, you go out, spend that, and then the tenants are going to go and pay you more. The reality is they're not paying more at the moment. They will pay more if they're large corporate, you know, global corporate tenants. The global corporate tenants out there, they're all focused on the, the most sustainable buildings and they're signing up to big, big rents in the, in the best buildings in the city center and stuff. But as you go outside of those main, large, large, you know, massive global businesses, as you go to the, to, to the more SME sector, there's less of a focus on ESG and sustainability and all that kind of stuff. And so all of a sudden people are not prepared to pay extra rent for that. And so the 200,000 option suddenly looks like it might make more sense because if you're going to get the same amount of money for after spending 200,000 as you're going to get after spending a million, well then, simple question, like why would you pay the million? And so that is, has been one of the conundrums that we've faced up to date. Tenants are not prepared to pay more. Certainly those tenants at the kind of mid-level, we'll say. Strange times indeed. Now, so a lot of people are talking about ESG and sustainability and all that, but they're not actually prepared to pay for it. And they're not prepared to pay the higher rent. So, you know, you might sort of say there's a bit of... Uh, walking, uh, talking the talk, but not walking the walk in that. So why bother doing it in the first place is the question. Well, there's a couple of reasons and, you know, assets that have been really, you know, extensively refurbished. If you've done a really comprehensive uh, refurbishment on an asset, it will lease much, much quicker than an asset that has not gone through the same kind of rigorous renovation or refurbishment. And so you think about it like this, your, your building is for sale on the market or for lease on the market and it's got all the bells and whistles. It's brand new. It's got all of the latest equipment, um, LED lights, the latest uh, you know, boiler systems that are very efficient, brand new lift, everything like that. And then the building across the road is available at the very, very same rate and uh, it has all the old equipment dated old elevator when you get in it kind of rattles and stuff like that i mean if you're an occupier looking at these two buildings which one are you going to rent you're going to rent the one that has all the newest equipment will you pay a little bit more you might but the reality is is that at the moment the market is not offering more for these new buildings and so it's a, it's kind of a difficult situation out there at the moment now as a landlord why should i only get the same rent this is the conundrum that we're kind of facing. So I can see how people would kind of decide, you know what, I'm not going to spend the equivalent of three years of rent doing up this building. I'm going to instead go for option two and I'm going to spend just two, I'm going to take the money that I got from the tenant. I'm going to do up the building to that amount. And that represents, you know, eight months of rent. And I already got the check from the previous land, from the previous tenant. So doesn't that make a lot more sense? And yes, I can understand how it makes sense to think like that. The risk here though, is that you go, you do the work, you've spent the money, and then you put it on the market to rent. And let's say that other people have made the decision to spend the million and you've decided to spend the 200. And tenants are all going to the 1 million options and your 200 option is sitting there. So all of a sudden you're facing the situation where you're building is now sitting there unattractive 
not attracting any tenants. And after eight months, you still have a vacant building. Now you're in a situation where it has cost you in vacancy the same amount as you got from the tenant and you've gone and spent the money. So now you're out of pocket. Once that gets to 12 months, you're now 300 grand out of pocket in, in, in unpaid rent. How, do you now decide, oh my God, I'm in a bad situation. I better go and spend the money on doing up the building. But at this stage, you're now out of pocket the 300 grand because you delayed. So are you going to have to spend the money and have another period when the building is unusable because you've got contractors in and stuff? So you can see what I mean, how it becomes a bit of an issue that if you take the risk of spending the lower amount and it doesn't connect with the market and nobody wants the building, then you're into a situation where you have to bring contractors back and spend the money, the extra money. And if you had just spent it at the outset, you would have gotten the tenants in sooner and you would have got rent flowing sooner. So you can see what I mean. This is the problem with these kind of conundrums because which one makes sense? Which one is the prudent option to go for? And, um, you know, if you wait any longer, you're just going to continue to kind of see your rents, you know, you're, you're missing your rents. And every day that you miss rent is effectively like spending extra money on the building. So this racks up pretty quickly. Now, there's another consideration, and this is kind of another aspect that you may not have considered. And one of the reasons why when you do up a building is it affects the valuation of the building. And if you are, you know, if you've just spent a million on your building, uh, valuers will come along and they'll take a look at that and they'll say, okay, this building has all the latest gadgets and everything like that. And so on an assumed rent of this, it will be worth X. And so the amount of money that you put into the building might have increased the value of the building by pretty much the same amount as what you spent. And so you could be in a situation where, well, let's say it doesn't quite come up to that amount, but let's say you are, you've spent a million, but the value of the building has now gone up by about 750,000, okay? So all of a sudden you've spent a million and you've got three quarters of that back in an uplift in value. All of a sudden that 250 extra that you spent doesn't look so expensive and maybe it was a worthwhile decision to make. The other side though is if you have a portfolio and also you have to think about your banking covenants. Now, first of all, you have to, you know, we have to assume that somebody has a portfolio in the, in the first place. Now, I mentioned at the outset, if you don't have a portfolio, then this one asset represents your only income stream. And this is a big risk because all of your income has stopped while the tenant moved out. This makes it much, much more difficult decision because you can't afford to have that building vacant for a long time. So you nearly have to spend the money sooner than anyone else. Whereas if you have a portfolio with multiple buildings all bringing in rent while your other building is sitting empty, well, then you have a little bit more of a cushion. The problem with owning a big portfolio is that, and I mentioned already the ESG and the sustainability and all that. Nowadays, investors are starting to look at this with a real critical eye. And um, if you are not investing in your portfolio as a total sort of global figure, then a single asset can actually bring down the value of the entire portfolio. So let's say you have 10 buildings and nine of them are all, all the bells and whistles, everything, it's, you know, it's a really high standard building. 
uh, buildings with good tenants in them and all the rent. And then this one building is there and you've decided to go with the, the lower option and not to spend much on it. So this building is not sustainable, doesn't have all the bells and whistles. That can actually contaminate the larger portfolio because when people are looking at your portfolio and they are valuing it, they will be valuing it on the basis of it also having this green premium. And they'll be thinking to themselves that, okay, this portfolio, all the assets are ESG compliant. All the assets are sustainable. This portfolio would be of interest to investors that are looking for completely green portfolio. Whereas if that one building that you've left is not green, then you can't sell the portfolio as 100% green. And that might impact how people perceive your portfolio. And so you could actually pull down the value of the wider portfolio of all 10 buildings. Now, there's lots of terms for these buildings that are getting kind of left behind. And one of them is stranded assets. I talked about this in a previous episode, I believe. And then there's green premium versus brown discount. And the brown is what we're talking about. The building has just been handed back to you. It is effectively a brown building. And there's a discount applied because it doesn't have all of the bells and whistles. The green premium is the premium that you're getting on the value, not necessarily on the rent, but on the value. Now, the other thing I mentioned was the impact on banking. And this is something that you've really got to think through and you've got to have a, a relationship with your bank in order to kind of understand some of these things. Investors around the world, like I'm not just talking about property investors, I'm talking about global investors, institutions. They're looking at ESG in a kind of global way and they're looking at their entire portfolio. So they're not just looking at property, but they're looking at stock market portfolios, bond market portfolios, all of this kind of stuff. And they're really big institutions. Like if you, to name the biggest one, you know, you've got BlackRock and the, the founder of BlackRock um, is a guy called Larry Fink. And he was the person who kind of came out and said that, I think it was 2018, he said that climate risk is investment risk. And he's the guy that is kind of responsible for getting the whole market to start looking at ESG more seriously. But the big banks that are out there, the banks that you know you will go to to borrow your money from, they also usually have got in you know their 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 shares are listed on the stock market, so they have got big investors investing in their shares, and these same investors have the same interest in ESG and sort of green and all that. And you might sort of say, well, what's a bank got to do with that? A bank is lending money. There's no assets. But actually, it's the value of their book, their loan book. That if you delve into their loan book, if their loan book is filled with old assets, old brown property assets, if they've lent billions to landlords who are not upgrading their buildings, then they may be perceived as being a poor investment. So a lot of the big banks out there now are starting to look at their portfolios and starting to say, let's get these books as green as possible. And so their loan books now are starting to become more and more focused on green loans. And by that, what I mean is, you will see at the moment that portfolio or mortgages for residential property, if you go out and look for a mortgage and your house happens to be A1 or A2 rated for energy, 
And uh, I don't know, you know, depending on where you're listening in from, there might be different ratings. But here in Ireland, we have a thing called the BEOR CERT, and it rates your building. And the top, the highest mark you can get for your energy rating is A1. If you have an A1 or an A2 rated house, you will get a half a percent lower mortgage than anyone else. And that is the incentive that the banks are now starting to offer uh, their clients, their customers, for greening their portfolio, for greening their loan book. So more people will approach them because of this. And this is how they end up with a greater percentage of their mortgages are with green property, with green buildings, uh, greenhouses, um, sort of more energy efficient houses. And so you can see how if you might not be interested in it, but if your bank is starting to kind of insist that you're investing in your portfolio or they're not interested in renewing your loan, then you can see how the difficult choices become more and more sort of front and center in your thinking. So you've got to invest in your assets to protect them and you've got to be thinking about the shift in the economy towards this green and ESG. My take on it all is that the world's governments are not completely aware of the way the world is kind of, what the way the world is moving towards. And they're going to suddenly wake up to the reality and have to take action. Whereas big investors, big financial institutions, they seem to have actually recognized it sooner and they're starting to take these actions now in advance. And they don't want to be in a situation where their assets start getting you know, valued downwards because they haven't taken proactive sort of action in this direction. And so I kind of think I can see where this is going. I try to, my job is to try to read the tea leaves and try to understand where are we going. And the way I see it is that even though the smaller businesses, the smaller tenants and occupiers, even though they're not interested today, I think we are moving sort of in that direction to the point where there will be Everybody will be on this at some point. It might be a couple of years away. But when you're making these investments in your buildings, you're not making them for the next 12 or 18 months. You're making them for 10 years or whatever it might be. So you need to be thinking about how your asset is going to look 10 years from now if you don't make those investments. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from. And you don't want to have a situation where your building is a stranded asset because you haven't invested in it any more than these businesses that the tenants that are taking the buildings today that don't have all these green credentials, at some point, they, their, their businesses will be downvalued by banks, investors and stuff because they're not paying attention to this. They, they are in a, an old building that is paying, uh, they're paying rent on an old building. Maybe it's a low rent, but the building is not up to a certain standard. And I'm seeing that now. We're get, I'm getting a lot of questions from occupiers asking, you know, can the building be made more green or what are the, what are the current levels of emissions from the building? So I'm seeing it quite a lot. And one of the things that um, I noticed, actually, I was reading a, a newspaper article today, and it's, it's quite um, interesting the way it's going. At the moment, here in Ireland, there is a, there's a big kind of debate over the different sectors of the economy that, um, that are kind of haggling with the government to get lower emissions targets. And there's a big question mark around the sector, the agriculture sector. 
And that is because agriculture, or agriculture is one of the biggest contributors to carbon emissions. And if you have got a big um, herd of cattle and you're a you know, milk producer or meat producer or whatever, that is actually a huge amount of um, carbon emissions from that. And so there are different you know, sections of the market that are kind of saying that should be reduced. But of course, if you're a farmer, and this is where your income comes from, you don't want to have any cap put on you at all. And so the big issue is starting to be who is going to reduce the amount of um, uh, the target that the, that the farmers have got to stick to. And I can see it now in, uh, you know, the three, our, in Ireland here, our government is made up of three parties. There's Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, and there's the Greens. And the Greens are, as you would expect, they're focused on the climate and green energy and all that kind of stuff. And so their reason for being in government is to affect these kind of climate changes. Whereas the other two parties traditionally would have had a lot, of, would have enjoyed a lot of support from the rural communities. And all of a sudden, if they're pushing these, you know, targets for lower emissions and telling people you actually have to reduce the size of your herd, you can see how politically that is very unpopular. And so they might actually lose their rural vote. And all of a sudden, this becomes kind of something that they're, they're, they're now wavering on whether or not they should make this decision. And it's going to create tension and friction between the government partners and eventually it could lead to a collapse uh, because you know they're all kind of vying for something that they would have stated to their voters saying you know we're going to make sure you get the following and whatever it is so it's a difficult situation i remember talking about this back in um, last year and i think it was october when the cop 26 conference was on in glasgow and when COP26 was on in Glasgow, it was the big, you know, all the countries in the world came to Glasgow to talk about climate change and what they're going to do to stall global warming. And one of the most, you know, we, I think we all agree that climate change is a major issue and that as people are ignoring it, as people are ignoring it, you're getting into a situation where sea levels are going to rise, extreme rainfall events, we've already seen this in Germany, You've got extreme temperature events. We're seeing this currently this week. You're seeing more wildfires, seeing that at the moment. We saw it in Australia last year, America last year. You're seeing droughts. I'm looking at um, videos a lot these days of Lake Mead in America, completely, almost completely dried out. And that lake is supposed to f supply water to 40 million people. And then increased hurricanes and all this. So it's there's no doubt that global warming is starting to have this, it's starting to take place. And the most frustrating thing about all of this kind of talk and the politics that gets in the way of it is that all we're talking about at the moment are emissions targets. We're just talking about targets. We're not talking about actually achieving anything. We're talking about what is each sector of the economy? What is their target that they're aiming for? Whether they achieve it or not is another thing, but. And everyone is looking for less of a target so that they don't. And the most frustrating thing of it all is that next year, we're going to, or I think it's next, uh, this November, we all have to meet again, all these COP26 nations have to meet again to re-agree the targets because they all accept that last year the 
agreements that they made on the targets were not actually sufficient to actually achieve the goal that they have for 2030. So everyone came away patting each other on the back saying we had a great conference. But the reality is, is that instead of achieving targets that would you know, actually prevent global warming um, from, you know, from rising above a certain temperature, I think what it is, the original temperature is that they want to l- limit global warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. And that, was, that figure was set in 2015 in, in Paris. They call it the Paris Accord or whatever. At the moment, we are not on course to achieve that even after everyone patting each other on the back. So I think that, um, you know, the politics got in the way. The politicians couldn't, they didn't think they could go home and sell it to their voters. And so everyone kind of walked away with a bit of a compromise. And in the meantime, what's happening is the world is warming up faster and faster and faster. And there's going to get to a point, I think, where suddenly we're all faced with a very, very difficult situation. Instead of it being a slow transition, it's going to be a very abrupt transition where in order to make the, you know, to achieve the targets, in order to achieve the levels that we need to get to, we're going to have to suddenly go to level 10 instead of like incrementally from level one to two to three. These are my views. Anyway, look, I won't bore you with my thoughts on this any further. I just, what I want you to do to take away from this is when you're looking at your portfolio, don't look at it exclusively today look at your portfolio um, in a 10-year horizon and consider that 2030 is only eight years away and 2030 is the big time frame that everyone is kind of aiming to be carbon neutral and stuff. And there's going to take investment to get your portfolio neutral if you're even interested in doing that. And whether or not you're interested in it or not, it could be forced upon you by subsequent governments. And uh, as a Anyway, look, I'm going to leave you guys with that. Don't, uh, just don't think of climate change as something that is kind of on the periphery. I actually think it's coming front and center. The more and more of these extreme events that we're seeing, the 40 degrees temperature that people are going to be experiencing in England this week, I think it's starting to dawn on us all that this is actually happening. Anyway, guys, hope you enjoyed this one. Until next week. Stay focused and disciplined. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you enjoyed or found this episode useful, please take a moment to leave a review over on iTunes or indeed share it with a friend. This really helps the podcast grow and reach out to more people. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group Behind the Facade Community. Or indeed, you can find me on social media using my handle, Gavin J. Gallagher. And you can stay up to date with the various projects I'm working on by joining my tribe. And that is by adding your name to my email list over at GavinJGallagher.com. That's all for now, guys. Speak to you all same time next week.